Jesus now declares, a prophet is not without honor except at home, preparing us for the other prophet to be killed, which in turn prepares us for the prophet to be killed and to be killed by his own. about the comparisons here between Jesus and Paul. Jesus returns to his hometown and he receives just utter disrespect. This is just a carpenter. This is the son of Mary. His, he was probably born illegitimately. This is his sisters and his even his brothers don't believe in him. You expect us to believe in him when even his brothers and sisters don't believe in him? Think of Paul's words as Paul writes to the Corinthians, particularly the Corinthians in both letters to the Corinthians, how Paul writes to them that the whole issue there in Corinth was the issue that the the believers in Corinth were having these super apostles, Paul calls them, these super apostles come and they're saying to the Corinthian believers, this guy, Paul, he's okay, but I mean, really, he's Paul after all. And the guy's always getting thrown in prison. Look at what he wears. I mean, his clothes are horrible. They don't even fit him right. Looks like hand-me-down clothes. He's always getting beat up. I mean, you're really going to believe what he says? And Paul's argument is to say, precisely, that's God's way. God's way is always to choose the way of the messenger being such an ordinary messenger that no attention is drawn to the messenger. Instead, the attention is given to the God of the message. That's Paul's whole point. That's what he says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7, that God has put in these jars of clay this glorious, precious gospel so that nobody will look at the jar and say, wow, that's a great jar. What's inside of it is pretty good too. But the jar was such a wonderful jar. Paul says, that's not the way God does this. He puts the precious message inside such an ordinary container so that no one will say what a beautiful container, what an impressive container. Instead, they will say what a God, the God who is the God of that message. So that's, that's, God, that's God's whole point there. That's God's whole methodology. And so even in this way, Jesus is still our example. Now, Jesus, of course, is the Son of God. Jesus is... The, the only one with a dual nature, fully human, fully God, perfectly indwelt by the Spirit. Yet at the same time, in His humanness, in His humanity, His humanity is so utterly ordinary as to be a scandal. His humanness is so utterly unremarkable as to present a stumbling block to those who would come to Jesus with superficial belief. And that's the whole point. Those who would come to him with superficial belief stumble over the ordinariness of the messenger, so to speak. Now, we know that the messenger here is also the message. But can you see the parallels? Can you see the parallels of Jesus' utter ordinariness and how they stumbled over his ordinariness? The New Testament tells us of three stumbling blocks to faith. Three stumbling blocks that people trip over, that people stumble over, that prevent faith. The first stumbling block 
we're told, is the stumbling block uh, of wealth. Remember the whole parable where Jesus tells about the, the camel passing through the eye of the needle? And Jesus says it's, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a person of wealth to repent and be saved? Or the rich young ruler? So we're told that wealth is a stumbling block to belief. Wealth is a stumbling block to faith because wealth instills within a person a type of self-reliance that's the enemy of faith. The second stumbling block that we're told of is the stumbling block of the, the shame of the cross, the scandal of the cross. Paul says that's, that's a stumbling block. It's a stumbling block for Jews and it's foolishness to Gentiles to think of a king, of a Messiah, hanging on a cross executed on our behalf. And so that's a stumbling block. But then the third stumbling block is the stumbling block, we're told, of lowliness. The lowliness, the ordinariness, the, the lack of outward glory of Jesus the man. Do you know how, do you know how a, a, sometimes an impressive messenger can sort of override a mediocre message. You know how that can work sometimes? You know how someone who is a really skilled presenter of a message can take a very ordinary sort of message and present it in a way that makes you think it's a much better message than what it really is? We see this all the time in our culture all around us. And you know this to be, to be true. It, it, all you have to do really is just to look at just about anything that comes out of the mouth of a Hollywood actor or actor, actress or pop music star, any of those people, anything they say. It, it can be the most ordinary, silly, nothing. And people will hear that and say, wow, did you hear what he said? Did you see what he tweeted? And you're like, yeah, it's pretty dumb. But because it came from that messenger... Or we also see this within the circles of false faith, don't we? We also see this within the circles of, of sometimes false faith or at least those preachers of the message of Christianity that, that perhaps stray off the beaten path, so to speak. And what I mean by that is you, you ever hear or you ever see the people sharing things, social media tweets and sort of thing, where this, this one really famous, really well-known preacher or pastor or somebody will say something and it's just the most common ordinary thing and people are like wow that's deep you're like that's, that's just every, we all get that we all know that but because the messenger is a flashy messenger is a popular messenger is an attractive messenger they can take a weak message and make it something that it's not that's not what god does god wants to focus on the message not the messenger. And so God wants His message brought through the most ordinary means, the means that are so ordinary that to even these Nazarenes, it's a stumbling block to Him that this man is just the carpenter. Now, fortunately for us, we have the Old Testament that helps us to, to guide us through this in places like Isaiah 53, verses 2 and 3. For he, meaning Jesus, grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So the ordinariness of Jesus as in his humanness, is a stumbling block, is a real stumbling block for these 
Nazarenes. Now verse 4, And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. So here comes with another aphorism, or in the language of Scripture, a proverb or a proverbial statement. And this is an aphorism that Jesus uses that was a very common aphorism of the day. In fact, it was not just a Hebrew aphorism. It was, it was known throughout the Greek world and the Roman world. It was, this was a very common saying. And the saying is, a prophet is not without honor except at home. Now, understand carefully what Jesus says and what he means by this proverb or this aphorism. And, and make sure that you don't make him say, make it say more than what he said. Because what Jesus didn't say was, a prophet has honor everywhere except home. That's not what he said. Jesus didn't say that everywhere a prophet goes, he's honored except when he comes home. That's not what he said. What he said is, if there's one place that a prophet will not be honored, it's at home. It's in his hometown. And to honor a prophet is to recognize that they are the spokesman for God, that they are sent of God and that they're speaking the words of God. Jesus is dishonored at home and he's dishonored in the opposite way that he would have been honored. They say, where did this man get this? Where did he get this wisdom? The implication is there's two places he could have gotten it. He could have gotten it from God above or he could have gotten it in the same place that the Pharisees spelled out plainly in chapter 3 from Beelzebul, from Satan. And so the implication, they don't go as far as the Pharisees went and saying it right out, but the implication is we don't believe that he's from God. So he must be getting this from somewhere else. So you see how dishonoring that would have been to a prophet. But here's the first time in Mark's gospel that Jesus is called a prophet. And so we're being prepared here. Once again, we're being prepared for what's going to come two stories later, to the other prophet in Mark's gospel, who is John the baptizer. He's the other prophet. The other prophet will be killed. And let's all remember that that happened before now. That, that's already taken place. John the baptizer was killed before Jesus went across the Sea of Galilee. John, John the baptizer was killed some time ago. But remember we said that Mark saves that story for this point. He saves it for this place in the gospel for this reason, because Jesus now declares a prophet is not without honor except at home, preparing us for the other prophet to be killed, which in turn prepares us for the prophet to be killed and to be killed by his own. So in a larger sense, Jesus is in Nazareth right now, but in a larger sense, his people are the ones who will kill him. So we're all being, we're being prepared for all of that. It's foreshadowing it for us. Now, verse 5, And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few people and healed them. So there is the elephant in the room. He could do no mighty work there. Is that saying to us that Jesus was unable, that he did not have the ability to do a mighty work there because he lacked something that he needed to do a mighty work, and the thing that he lacked was the people's faith whom he wanted to do the work for? Is that what Mark is saying? He could do no mighty work there because of their unbelief. Jesus has power over demons. He has power over the, over the wind and the waves. He has power over leprosy. He has power over blindness. He even has power over death. But somehow he's stymied when it comes to his hometown folks who don't believe him. Is that what Mark is saying? That cannot be what Mark is saying. Mark cannot possibly be saying that Jesus 
lacked the ability to do any mighty works there because if Jesus lacked the ability to heal people because they didn't have faith, then what are we to make of all the other stories in which Jesus heals people whom we know had no faith? See, that's, that's faith healer type teaching right there. That's faith healer doctrine that says God can heal you if you have faith. And that's absolutely false. Because if Jesus requires your faith to heal you, then what do you make of all the other healings in which the person absolutely had no faith? The Gerasene demoniac, the, the demonized man in, in, in the region of the Gerasenes. Jesus cast the demons out. He could not believe in Jesus before that. Or a more explicit place to see this would be John chapter 9. The man born blind, Jesus heals the man born blind. And then there's a whole long story of how they're, they're trying to figure out who did it. And the Pharisees are asking the man and they're asking the man's parents. And the parents are like, we don't know because they don't want to be kicked out of the synagogue. They're like, ask him because we don't know. So they ask him and then he turns Jesus in. And then later on, he and Jesus meet on the street again. You remember that? They meet on the street and Jesus asks him straightforwardly, do you believe in the Son? of man. And he answers Jesus by saying, who is this son of man that I may believe in him? You remember that? So clearly when Jesus restored his sight, he did not have faith in Jesus. He didn't even know who he was. So it is absolutely false. Our theology, our doctrine would absolutely go off the rails if we understood Mark to be saying that Jesus lacked what he needed to heal because he lacked the faith of the people in him. So what is Mark saying here when he says plainly that Jesus could do no mighty work there? Well, this harkens us back. We touched on this same thing in chapter 1. When Jesus, we're told, was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness for his time of tempting. And we said there that what we are are being shown is that Jesus' will is so submissive so in tune, so connected to the Father's will, that when the Father's will is made known to him, it's just as if the Spirit were driving him. Or in this instance, if it's not the Father's will will to heal in Nazareth, then to Jesus, I can't do that. There's no way I can do that. That's not the Father's will. Do you see? That's plainly what Mark is saying. If it's not the Father's will, then to Jesus, He can't. Can God do anything? No, He can't. Be clear about that. God cannot do anything. God cannot do anything that's contrary to His nature. God cannot lie. That's contrary to His nature. God cannot do things against His will. God cannot violate His will. And so Jesus, perfectly filled by the Spirit of God, the Son of God incarnate, cannot violate the Father's will. I can't do that. 